0: We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 2 today, and we started this series of sermons from this Old Testament prophetic book of Isaiah last week, and if you were not here last week, I really want to encourage you to go back and listen to that message online. I rarely say that, but I'm saying it today because it will be very important at the beginning of this sermon series in the book of Isaiah to understand the book, to understand who and what and where and when of Isaiah. And it will also be very important that you get the very first message of chapter one. We're jumping right into chapter two. I'm going to resist that ever-present urge to re-preach what I did last week and just say, listen online today from Isaiah chapter 2 We're going to get a vision of the future exaltation of God and the worship of God contrasted with the current state of human pride and the eventual humiliation of man and we're going to hear the call back, the call back to God and to join him in this future. Stand with me in honor of God's word. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, <clears throat> and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that, we may, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. The land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust before the terror of the Lord. And from the splendor of his majesty, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols shall utterly pass away and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caves of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath for of what account is he? This is God's word. You may be seated. It's going to be helpful for you to remember along the way, that Isaiah was a man. He was a prophet. He lived 700 years before Christ. And he lived at a time when the nation, Israel, God's people, was divided. To the north was called Israel. The center there was Samaria. To the south was called Judah. The center there was Jerusalem. Isaiah's prophecy is primarily to Judah and Jerusalem, but to Israel and the other nations. Both Israel to the north and Judah to the south were in spiritual decline. And it's amazing that the spiritual decline actually began with King Solomon. He did what the Lord told him not to do as a king. We can hear portions of that coming through Isaiah as Solomon gathered all his riches and all of his foreign wives and made alliances with other people the choices that he made drew away his heart and the people followed him and the history from that time on of Israel up until Isaiah's day is this there are some good kings and there are some bad kings But the general trajectory is spiritual decline, unfaithfulness to God. Now, God, through Isaiah and other prophets, exposes the sin of the people, as we have just seen. And He warns, as we just read, He warns of judgment. And in Isaiah's day, 700 years before Christ, the big event that is coming that happened about 100 years after Isaiah's life is the event of the exile. When God judged his people by allowing them to be carried away to Babylon as punishment. But God is also calling them to repent. Then in their day, he says, repent And he promises a time when his people will return from exile. And that also happened in Isaiah's day or or in the days of the prophets after Isaiah lived. But God also used Isaiah and the situation of his day to communicate a future. To communicate a future that went far beyond the exile and even the return of the exiles. To communicate a future that is later revealed in the Bible to be the time when Jesus Christ himself would come. God used the situation at hand in Isaiah's day to talk about one who would come. And when Jesus came, Jesus actually said Isaiah wrote about him. But God is also communicating a future that Christ will bring to pass Someday. In other words, it hasn't happened yet. We read in the book of Revelation about things that Isaiah spoke about 700 years earlier, things that have yet to happen. So throughout Isaiah, we have to always be asking, what time is it? Are we in Isaiah's day? Just prior to and just after the exile? Are we in our day, the day of Christ's coming that we live in now, his first coming? Or are we in the day to come, the day when Christ will return? We see multiple layers throughout Isaiah. Whatever the day, the message is the same. And it's this, God is Lord Yahweh is his name. I am who I am, he said to the nation of Israel. Yahweh, the Lord, is God. He is God over all. He is the only God for all people. Not just Israel, but for all people. The message is that he, God, is holy. He is gracious. He is purposeful. He saves. The message is that people, all people, have sinned. All people are being called upon to repent and turn or return to God. The message of Isaiah, regardless of the day, is that God has a plan. He is moving forward with his plan to have a people saved By his suffering servant Messiah in Isaiah 53 to a great and final end when all things will be made new in a glorious kingdom of the king without end. That's the message. And the word keeps coming over and over. Come. Isaiah is full of of what we could soften soften up and say invitations, but really they're stronger than that. They're even stronger than, than urgings, they are commands. Come, repent, come to faith in God, come to faith in God through his servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, come and walk. Walk in the light, walk in the truth. Walk with God. Walk in his grace. Come and walk in the light of the Lord toward a future, a future of salvation, a future where all things are made new. It's a call to life. It's a call to hope. It's a call to renewal. And it really does set our lives right where they need to be. What is the future? What is our purpose now? Where are we going? What's the point? Isaiah, some have said, is a Bible within the Bible. It lays it all out for us. Come and walk in the light of the Lord. Now there are some hard words along the way. The future is bright. The future is a future of hope. But there's some hard words along the way because of human pride because of sin, and because of its devastating results. And so along the way, we see in Isaiah, here again this morning in chapter two, God is exposing the pride. He is calling to repentance because he wants to move us into that future. We often recoil at the strong callings of the Bible the strong callings to repent that's because we don't understand that this is a gracious call of God to move us forward into that future we must come to that future and into that future through the door of repentance of human pride and sin and through the door of faith in Christ so today the future From Isaiah 2, we see that the future is the exaltation of God and the worship of God and the word of God being heard and heeded, contrasted with the current state of human pride and the eventual humiliation of man, but as we said, a callback. The main message of Isaiah 2 is that God has a future for his people, and his people are people from all nations. And the future is bright in its glorious And it's peaceful and that it's human pride that keeps us from that future what will keep you from the future that God has your pride but God is calling us to walk in the light here's how chapter 2 is structured there are two calls here two commands we would say that come after two sections the first section is verses 1 through 4 and it's a vision of the future salvation and exaltation of God and God's mountain and God's place of worship and a vision of peace. And then after that comes the first call, verse five, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. The second section is in verses six through 21, and that is human pride. That is self-trust. And the call there is to stop regarding man. And what's interesting is you have to do The second command, verse 22, stop regarding man. It's a prerequisite to the first command to walk in the light of the Lord because self trust, self reliance, and pride is the starting point for everyone. We don't start out walking in God's light, we do not start out trusting in the Lord, and then we repent back to self trust and pride. People do turn back from God after they start out with God but that's returning to where they were originally and that's called apostasy. And that is happening. What we do is we start out doing what he said not to do in verse 22. We start out regarding man. We start out trusting self. We start out out trusting the things of human strength and human righteousness and human reasoning we start out in pride and then repentance from pride and to the light of the Lord is required so that we can enter into his future of glory and peace and salvation that's why the main calling is come Lay down your pride and self-trust. No longer regard man. Come and walk in the truth and the light of God toward this future. We'll take it in order, the first section and then the second section. The first section is in verses 2 through 4, the vision of the future. Verse 2 says, it shall come to pass. Now, I promise I'm not going to stop on every phrase in this chapter, or we won't get home until tonight. But I'm going to stop there. It shall come to pass. The word of the Lord is a sure word. It is a promise that will be fulfilled. The Lord said to the prophet Habakkuk, Write down the vision, make it plain, and wait for it, because it will happen at its appointed time. So when Isaiah starts this section with, it shall come to pass, he means it. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, in the prophets, I'm going to use a, a theological word here. In the prophets, in the latter days, is a phrase that is what we call eschatological. It just means this. Having to do with the end. Having to do with the future in the final days. But even then, we have to think about the time. We have to think about time in various ways. So, the, the exiles will return to Jerusalem. This is all about coming to the mountain of the Lord. And the exiles, those people whom God punished because of their sin, sent them into exile in Babylon, they will return to Jerusalem and they will return with joy. And in some sense, they will return to normalcy of life, but not to the extent that we're reading about in these verses. So Isaiah is speaking about their time, they will return, but he's also speaking about a future time and a future place. So this is God, through Isaiah, using the occasion of the exile and the return from exile to speak about a future and about God's purposes well beyond the exile, the latter days. The Lord is speaking a word of hope to people in Isaiah's day and he is speaking a word of hope to people today so when you read Isaiah and you hear these words oh there's gonna be a great day in Isaiah's day yes but the Lord is giving a prophecy that is eschatological it has to do with the future and the final and the great end And in that day, we have hope. He's speaking to us. Verses two through four, what's going to happen in those days? Verse two, the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be exalted and lifted up above all other high places, all other places of worship. The mountain of the Lord will be lifted up. The Lord God, the one living and true God, will be seen and He will be acknowledged for who He is and He will be worshipped. Now, just rock back a moment and let that vision start to seep into your mind and hopefully down into your heart that a day is coming, a day is coming when the Lord God the one living and true God will be acknowledged for who he is. His name will not be taken in vain. He will not be joked about. He will be loved and he will be embraced and he will be worshipped. That's what will happen. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be exalted. In verses two, the end of verse two and verse three, what else is going to happen when, when that happens? Many people are going to come And they're going to say, they're going to say, let's go to the mountain of the Lord. Let's listen to what the Lord says. Let's walk in his paths. Let's hear his word. What are people saying now about the Lord? They're saying his word was cultural and conditional. It was made up by people. It's inspirational. Anything but it rules. What will happen? Why is this happening? Because God will transform things in that day. God will save by his grace. Many people will come. Many people will say. Many people, look what it says at the end of verse 2, from all nations. They shall come to the Lord God. They shall come to his place of worship. Now, it's on a mountain. Many, many Bible scholars make a, a point of this, and I think it's good to make a point of this. They shall come to the mountain of God, the high place of God Almighty, but it says they'll flow. Things don't flow uphill. God will so reverse things that from among the nations, people will flow up to God by his grace. And they're from all nations, which reminds us, the Lord is not a local deity. In Isaiah's day, some of the heads of state, leaders, would actually recognize and honor other people's gods. Because they all believe that they've all got them. They all believe that they all were, deserve some kind of respect. What we see in Isaiah is the opposite of that. We hear the message loud and clear. We're going to hear it over and over for chapter upon chapter that the Lord God is not a local deity. He is not the God of one people or one nation. He's the one living and true God for all people. And he must be believed and he must be trusted by all who will be saved. And the beautiful thing is all who do believe in him will be saved. There's no God beside him. And that's why we have a great commission. There's no God beside the Lord God. There's no Savior beside Jesus Christ, and that's why we have a great commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Go to the ends of the earth. Our God is a missionary God. He's calling from all the earth, and what we have here is the vision of it happening. We have the vision of God's purpose for some from all the nations coming to him to worship. Then on into verse 3 what will happen in that day? They'll come and worship, they'll be from all nations, they'll say, come let us hear the word of the Lord, let us learn his ways, let's walk in his paths. One of the things I love about heaven, the idea of the new heaven and the new earth, the, the eternal state, one of the things that is beautiful about it is that true obedience and true walking in the light of the Lord will remain. God's ways will hold. God's truth remains. And in that day, there will be absolute, perfect, listening, heeding, embracing, obedience to the word of the Lord. And verse 4, the Lord will bring peace. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. Now, human beings have been trying to decide disputes and build coalitions and build groups of nations to try to bring an end to war. And hopefully to some extent that has worked. But we know it hasn't worked to the full extent. But the Lord will do that. That's what's going to happen in that day. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. You've probably heard that somewhere, maybe in a song or a poem or you saw it on a plaque and you had no idea where that came from. That's Isaiah 2. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Shalom. Peace. Disputes among formerly fighting people are all going to be settled. And the tools of war are going to be refashioned into productivity and prosperity. And there's going to be peace. Do you feel that? Do you long for that? That day? Do we, do we resonate with this? Can we connect to it? That a day is coming like that when the Lord will bring peace? What a vision. Every generation has longed for this. And we say, what do we say? We say with revelation, come, Lord Jesus. Every generation has had some in it stirred by the Spirit and the Word to ask, well, when, when and where is this going to be? Still we're asking. Psalm 119 says, the unfolding of your word gives light. And so the unfolding of scripture tells us when and it tells us where. It tells us where we come to to find this peace. It tells us when this will happen. It tells us who will bring it. The unfolding of the scripture shows us this in fullness. We come to, say, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12 The identity of the one who will bring this peace. The identity of the one who will judge this way. The the identity of the one who will settle these disputes. Really, the whole, the identity of the very mountain of the Lord is, is in Hebrews chapter 12. Let me read it to you. You can read it when you go home. It's Hebrews 12. You have come to Mount Zion, he says. This is New Testament. He's writing to Christians And he says, you've come to Mount Zion. Well, Mount Zion's mentioned here. The mountain of the Lord's mentioned in Isaiah 2. But in Hebrews, he says, you've come to this mountain. You've come to the city of the living God. Sounds like Isaiah 2. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come, he says to Christians, you've come to a place with innumerable angels in festal gathering. You've come to a place where the angels are gathered around worshiping and celebrating. If you're a Christian, you've come there. I've never been to that place. You have. I'm going to tell you when and where in just a moment. You've come, he says, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You've come to the people who are at this place. You've come to God, he says. You've come to God who judges all. You've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You have come to Jesus. Jesus is the mountain of the Lord. Jesus is the city of God's presence. Jesus is the one who will be worshiped. Jesus is the one whose word goes out and is heated by all the nations who trust in him. Jesus is the one who brings shalom, peace. Jesus is the one who will end all wars. Hebrews goes on, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus' blood sprinkles us with a blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel, the first man murdered. His blood cried out to God for justice. Jesus speaks a better word. Jesus, in his shed blood, is justice served on our sin as he bore the wrath of God on the cross. And Jesus' blood cries out, have mercy on them, Lord God. Jesus. The rest of the story, when we come to Christ Jesus, we are forgiven. We are made right with God. When we come to Jesus, we're coming to God's holy hill in worship. We're coming from all the nations. We're coming to learn the word of the Lord and walk in his ways. When we come to Jesus, that's where and when we come today. Jesus himself said, behold, I am coming soon. When Christ returns, he will judge the proud. He will judge those who reject him. He will bring the new Jerusalem with him, the new mountain, the house of the Lord coming down out of heaven. He will bring those who are of faith into his nation and into that place of peace. Come. This is the first section of Isaiah 2. It's the vision of what is to come. And he closes this first section with verse 5. Come, come, O house of Jacob. Come, all of the people of God of faith. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Orient yourself your whole life to Christ and the future that is bright. Now we must continue with the rest of the chapter though because there's one thing that will keep us from Christ. There's one thing that will keep us from that future that, I, that Isaiah lays out. And that one thing that keeps us is the same thing that kept God's people from experiencing him in Isaiah's day. And that one thing is found in verse 22, it's regard for man. It's the exaltation of humanity, the way of man. It is pride. It is pride and all of her children. C.S. Lewis calls pride the great sin. You say, Oh, I committed the great sin. Probably not. Probably the great sin in you led to you committing a sin. The great sin is pride and all of her children. And all of her children are the self-hyphenated sins. We see in this next section, latching on to other things is a form of pride and self-trust. It may appear that it's trusting in other things, but it's actually self-trust because it's trusting in the things of your own choosing rather than trusting in God. Verses 6 through 21, the second section is the current state of human pride. And he says in verse 6, you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. And we have to stop and say, what does this mean? I mean, you you never thought you would read in the Bible words like God has rejected his people. What does he mean? Well, we know in chapter 1, from chapter 1, that when God says to his people, come let us reason together, and they do come and they repent, he always cleanses and forgives their sin. So the rejection here is the discipline of the Lord that is to cause them to return. And brothers and sisters, if your life is moving in a trajectory away from God, if you're not walking in the light and you feel as if the Lord is rejecting you, the Lord loves you and he will let you feel like that because he is calling you home. And the Lord rejects, he said in chapter 1, the worship and the prayers of his people who use worship and prayers as a cover for their sins. We will live in pride, we will live in self-trust, we will do our thing, but we will certainly go to church. And, of course, there is a rejection of those who prove themselves not to be the children of God through their own unrepentance. Verses 6 through 8 bring together the problem with God's people. And if you look at these verses, you'll see the words full and filled. They are filled. They're full of everything except faith except faithfulness to God verse 6 they are full of things from the east they are full of the fortune tellers like the Philistines they're they're slapping their hands and making deals with foreigners and what's happening in the nation of Israel at this point is they're making alliances with other nations for their protection rather than trusting in God and every time they did that they took on the religious practices of those other nations and they became idolaters they they violated God's word He says in verse 7, they're filled with silver and gold and treasure. In other words, they trusted in their wealth. They trusted in their ability to buy their way out of their trouble rather than trusting in God. He says they're filled with horses and chariots, which means they trusted other nations. One of the main places of mistrust for the nation of Israel was Egypt. And their military might for their salvation rather than trusting in the Lord. The Lord's people are using alliances and military might and wealth instead of and to the exclusion of trusting in God. Verse 8 they're filled with idols, they're trusting in the work of their own hands. They're full and they're filled with everything except faith in God. And this is the truth in cultures today if you enjoy learning about other cultures and you watch documentaries about other cultures or you visit other places and every they're just full aren't they you say oh they're just full of these 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 this great art and this great literature and these great traditions and you know because it's the food time of the of human existence with food channels they're full of great food but void of God and this is true of families families can be full your family can be full of everything that you think you must have in this world to be a good family but you might be void of faith and churches can be this way oh my goodness I realize this and I I'm sobered by this I'm a I feel a bit of responsibility for this. I'm a pastor. I'm an elder. I'm a member. And Christian churches, Christian churches can be filled with everything and can look like we've got everything and not have faith and not be full of God and full of faithfulness because of our own pride. Pray with me, brothers and sisters. Pray with me that God will fill us with Himself. That's what we need more than anything. That we filled with Him, the fullness of Him, as Paul said, verses nine through eleven. The result is this haughtiness, this haughty look. Verse nine, this lofty pride. Look what we have, and so he says, man will be humbled verse 11 in that day in that day the lord will be exalted and man will be humbled beginning in verse 12 through verse 16 the english translation uses the word against 10 times we call that a key word against 10 times Everything that he's against is an aspect of human pride. The day of the Lord's exaltation, verse 12, will also be the day when against every form of, just let your eyes follow along, every form of, of pride, everything lifted up beyond God in the mind and the affections and the trust, everything that appears strong like a cedar tree, everything that appears to endure like an oak tree, every place of worship like a mountain, every place of hope like a hill, every place of refuge like a tower, every place of defense like a wall, every economic security like a ship, every means of sustaining one's life like a craft, whatever it is, good or bad, it can be good. Whatever it is, good or bad, if lifted up to the place of God, It will be brought low on the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will be against it. Why? Because it comes from human pride. Now at this point you may be asking, why is God so against human pride? Does God have a problem? Again, C.S. Lewis. Why is God against human pride? Because God knows that human pride is, is what will keep you from getting him. He loves you. God doesn't need us to stroke his ego. He doesn't need us to affirm him. God is holy and self-existent. He's fine. But he loves us. He loves you. He loves the people of the nations. And so he thunders forth with this kind of hard word against human pride because he knows that the single thing that will keep you from knowing him is your pride. And in love, he wants to demolish it. (laughs) And yes, it hurts. And yes, it's uncomfortable, but he loves you that much. On that day, verse 18 through 21, people will finally realize it on that day. But unless they've repented, it will be a day of terror. So what is the conclusion? Verse 22, stop regarding man. Stop. Stop trusting in humanity. Learn from history. Learn from history. Stop trusting man. Come out of the darkness. Lay down your pride. And back to verse 5. Come to the light of the Lord. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Let him expose you when he When he pricks your mind and points out your sin, don't turn on the TV. When he starts to make you unsettled because of your pride, don't find an activity to engage in. Stop. Come to the light. Let him expose you. Let the light purify you. Let it guide you. Send out your light. Lead us back to, to your holy hill, the psalmist said. Let the light lead you back to God. Walk in the light. Come to Christ. Be guided by the light to a future where Revelation 21 says there will be no sun and moon because it won't be needed because the glory of God will give all the light needed on that day. Come to the light. This is salvation. Salvation is humility before God versus the pride of man. Salvation is trust in God versus self-trust. This is discipleship. Discipleship is walking in the way and the light of God rather than walking our own way. This is mission. This is a chosen people who've been brought into the light, who now live as light to draw other people into the light versus hiding the light under a basket, missing the opportunity to testify to the glory and the grace of God. Come, let us walk in In the light of the Lord, let us walk in Christ. Father in heaven, thank you for your word today.